Good morning. It's good to be apart together. Isn't it fun to have Storyliners introducing our online gathering from all these exotic locations like Florida, South Korea, and this morning, Baroda. Thank you, Josh and Nicole. Hey, have you heard the story of the woman who goes to the pet store to, to buy a parrot? Days pass and the parrot doesn't talk and so she takes it back and, and they tell her, he needs some more freedom. And so she gets a bigger cage and, and that week the parrot flies around from corner to corner but he still doesn't talk. And so she goes back again, oh, he needs some toys, they tell her. And so she buys him some toys and he plays with them a little bit but still doesn't say a word. So back again to the pet store, this parrot still isn't talking. You need a mirror. He'll love to see how beautiful he is. And so she gets the mirror. And now this parrot has a bigger cage, all kinds of toys, a mirror to see himself in, and he says nothing. The next day she goes back to the pet store and, invite, and informs them that the parrot has died. Oh no, they say, and he never talked at all? Oh yes, she said, just before he died. He said, don't they sell food at that place? There may be a lot of things that we need, but nothing can live without food, without nourishment. This is not only true for our bodies. This morning I'd like to suggest that it's true for our souls as well. As we've seen in the life of our unlikely hero, Peter, the last few weeks, it's critical for us to be set free from the arrogance and the anxiety that comes with it and from idols and the illusion of self-sufficiency that comes with them. But these are needs, not nourishment. We need them to live, but we can't live on them. So our question this morning is, what is it that feeds our soul? And to get at that, I'd like to look one last time at our unlikely hero, Peter in one of my favorite passages in the Bible because I think it takes us back to the very start, to the basics of what nourishes our soul. And it's something that Peter actually wrote to a group of followers of Jesus. And this is what he said to them. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now we call it the gospel of grace. The good news that Jesus has done everything necessary for the salvation of our souls. And by the way, Peter is not just talking about an eternal afterlife here. The word he uses means the salvation of your entire life experience. And he talks about receiving it as in present tense, like actively enjoying it right here and right now. And this gospel of grace is, is so nourishing, so life-giving that Peter, he reaches for the most mysterious and beautiful metaphor that he can imagine. 
and he compares it with a new birth. So if we want to know how trusting in the gospel, following Jesus, can nourish our souls, and if we want to know, then we need to know what the Bible means by being born again. Now in our day, it means that you're a certain kind of very conservative Christian, usually very serious, uptight, and often, and this is just my opinion, a really bad dancer. I mean, if you dance at all. But it really is tragic that this invitation to be born again has been hijacked because Jesus himself uses it when talking to a man named Nicodemus. And it's all about Jesus' free offer to any and to all to begin life again with a new plan and direction, a new source and goal. It's about going back to the start. In the Bible, being born again is not something that's just for certain types of fundamentalist Christians. It's for everyone. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus wasn't just anybody. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. It was like this religious slash civic council. You have to picture today it would be like the Rotary Club combined with the Lions Club that merges with the church elder board that's all smashed together into a big country club. In other words, Nicodemus was a very successful, connected, accomplished, and wealthy man. A pillar of the community, a paragon of moral excellence and religious piety. Now on top of all this, unlike the rest of the Sanhedrin, who, as you might imagine, could probably come off as kind of cocky and self-righteous, Nicodemus is actually a really good guy. He's open, he's humble. It was actually quite courageous of him to approach Jesus at all. Bottom line, Nicodemus is a good man, highly regarded by everyone. And yet Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Wow, it's amazing. He didn't say, hey Nick, look, you're doing really well. Just let me pick a little lint off your shoulder here, straighten your tie remind you, you know, you should call your mom a little bit more and you're good to go. No. Jesus says, you must be born again. You must go back to the start. Learn from the beginning. Leave behind your reputation, all your accomplishments that you've worked so hard to acquire and become like a little baby. You must be born again to be nourished by the grace of God. Look, when Jesus chose his disciples, you could argue, and many have down through history, that he basically picked the 12 biggest losers that he could find. I mean, morally, financially, politically, socially, educationally, religiously, the disciples would have been looked at like this, at the bottom of every scale we measure people by. By choosing the 12 disciples that he did, Jesus is communicating something to us, it's, it's like, look, if, if they can follow me, anyone can. But Nicodemus is different. He's on the other end of the spectrum. And so don't miss what Jesus is doing here. All of us may be better than the 12 disciples, but none of us are better than Nicodemus. He's saying, imagine like the best person that you know. 
the person you look up to the most, the person that's in your life that, that's so kind, nice, smart, forgiving, open, humble, successful, and generous that you want to be just like them, that person, even they, must be born again. You see, it's one thing to say that anyone, even the 12 disciples, can be born again. It's quite another to say everyone, even Nicodemus, must be born again. And Jesus is saying both. Now let's be clear. To, to be born again is not a call to religion or morality because we know this because you couldn't get more religious or more moral than Nicodemus. Jesus is, is doing something precisely the opposite. He is challenging religion and moralism and the ability of either or both to nourish our souls. So let's really hear what Jesus is saying. Your personality, ethnicity, class, race, your moral aptitude, your achievements, your religion, your education, bank balance, political views, talent, accomplishments, not even your reputation. None of that matters to him. Some of them may be nice, some may be all messed up. But Jesus is saying no matter how, how high you've climbed, Nicodemus, or no matter how low you've sunk, 12 disciples, you must be born again. What does our soul need? According to Peter in this passage, and according to Jesus in his interaction with Nicodemus, it is to be born again. This new birth is the food for our soul. So the question becomes, what is the source of this birth? Where does it come from? I'll bet more of us resonate with that strategy than we would like to admit. Hope is dangerous because it sets us up to be disappointed, maybe even devastated, because life doesn't always work out like we hope it will. But Peter, our unlikely hero, who Jesus has guided through arrogance and anxiety, past idolatry and self-sufficiency, says we can be born again into a living hope. Look, human beings are massively impacted by our understanding of our future. Now, now that understanding is linked to a lot of other aspects of life and, and psychology, to be sure. It's a complicated subject, and I'm not suggesting it's not, but essentially, what we understand our future to be guides how we live right now. Just think about it, for example, financially. When someone wins the lottery, what do they do? They quit their job. Why? Because they don't need money in the future. And that future changes their present. Our understanding of the future has a huge impact on how we live today. In other words, what we are hoping in and hoping for in the future shapes our present, our real everyday life experience. One of my favorite books is called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope by Andrew Del Banco. And in it, he says this, hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. And then he continues. 
Human beings need to organize their lives into a story that gives us hope. Without hope, we would be, as the anthropologist Clifford Geertz has put it, a kind of formless monster with neither a sense of direction, power, self-control, and a chaos of vague emotions. Maybe you've had times like that in your life. Maybe this is one of those right now. The chaos of vague emotions. You wouldn't be alone. It happens when our hope has been exposed as a fraud, or like we put it last week, when our idols have been exposed as ineffectual. The job didn't work out, the relationship failed, the business failed, you lost the game, death came calling. It's in moments like these when what we really hope in is tested. I remember three times like this in my life. Um, the first happened in 10th grade when it became clear to me that I wasn't very good at basketball. I mean, if the JV team was a stretch, the NBA was probably a false hope. The second time was when my wife Lisa and I, we'd been dating for about a year and a half and we broke up. And we were apart for almost a year and my life came undone. It was a hope exposed, tested, and failed. And the third time was when our daughter Emily died. She was five and a half years old. She actually would have been 18 this March. Another dream, another hope lost. And I know because even though we can't meet together in person, I hear from a lot of folks every week by phone, Zoom, text, email, and I know a lot of us are really struggling with, with a sense of direction right now with this chaos of vague emotions and maybe a lack of self-control. Could it be because in this crazy time that we're all living through, it's exposed our hope as insufficient, as perishable? Look, there are many good things that we can idolize that, that can become our false hope, but what we do for a living and romance are often at the top of that list. It doesn't matter what we believe in, hope in and hope for, if it leaves us disconnected and out of place. We can be the best at our job, we can find romantic love or our soul, but for our soul to be nourished, and, and those things are good, but like we said last week, they can't be God. The quality of our hope is that critical. It is absolutely essential. Without it, our soul is disconnected. It's out of place. God's grace is a living hope that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And if God and his grace is our future, that begins to change everything right here and right now. It is like being born again. A new living hope is the source of this birth. That is where it comes from. So what exactly is then this new birth? Well, let's go back to what Peter says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
The King James Version says it so well. I love this. It says, you're filled with a joy unspeakable. Think about this metaphor of birth. Birth is the beginning of a new life and the unfolding of the nature that you're born with. And if you're born a fox, on the one hand, you don't instantly you know, act like a fox. But on the other hand, you're not going to develop into a bird because to be born means you have a nature. You're filled with a certain DNA. And for the rest of your life, it's this unfolding of that DNA. It's, it's a yearning to become who you were meant to be. We are designed. We are filled with a spiritual DNA to become a child of God, filled with the unspeakable joy of a living hope in a secured and beautiful future. Disconnected from that living, unfolding, emerging hope is as frustrating and chaotic and as dangerous as a fox trying to become a bird and fly. What this means is, to be born again is not about some dramatic experience. We talked about this last week. It is a slow miracle, not instant magic. Look, every mother will tell you your birth is not a single event. It's a process. I remember when we lived in Los Angeles and Lisa was pregnant with our first child and so we started going to birthing classes and I had no idea what birth was. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess I was pic picturing chutes and ladders or a water slide or something. I don't know. Men don't know. But after eight weeks of this class, I knew things I didn't want to know. Things I wish I could forget, frankly. Effacement, dilation, afterbirth. Come on. That's never on TV. Birth is complicated and painful and messy. And don't get me started on messy. To be born again isn't about a magic moment, turning over a new leaf or some moral reformation. Being born again, being born anew means you're going back to the start, allowing our original spiritual DNA to be reawakened, reactivated, refreshed. And then the very exciting but often long, complicated, sometimes painful, and always messy labor that begins a new becoming. Think about real life. The difference between a rock and a plant is that a plant is alive. In, in some sense, it can, it can see or sense or feel its environment, light, dark, heat, cold. And to some degree, it can respond to that move up one level, a higher order of life like an animal, and they can sense even more about their surroundings and react even more assertively. An animal can run towards something that it needs and run away from danger. But human beings, we're the highest order of life. We have reason, and we can understand even more about our environment. And so this renewed DNA that comes into those who will accept it is the Holy Spirit. It is God himself in the form of unspeakable joy. And this is the very highest order of life because the Holy Spirit enables us to perceive more of reality, like capital R, the reality of God, the kingdom of God, in our real, 
everyday lives. So the new birth means that we can see, we can sense how reality, even in the worst of times, even when our idols and our false hopes have crumbled, is run top to bottom, beginning to end, by the grace of God. Not long after our daughter died, a colleague of mine burst into my classroom after school. And she was in tears, just distraught, because her husband had just been diagnosed with a terminal heart condition. And she now was experiencing the reality that our family had gone through for five years. Your loved one could die any day, any time. And she asked me, how do you do it, Mike? Like, how do you and Lisa keep it together? And I had no answer for her other than, we're not really doing anything. This isn't courage or toughness or commitment. What she was seeing in us was the lifelong birthing process of a new nature. We have a living hope that comes from perceiving a higher order of reality that this life isn't all there is this isn't the end of the story it's just the beginning and that living hope ironically helps us to actually seize this life here and now each and every day and moment all the more because our deepest hope is not in the circumstances that can change so swiftly in this life, if our deepest hope is in Jesus and following him, becoming like him, joining him as he loves others and the world right again, that hope, purpose, and passion is something that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It doesn't matter if people disagree or agree with us theologically or politically, if they're nice or if they're mean if they're our friends, or even our enemies. We can love them as they are, for who they are. And when circumstances are good, we're thankful. And when they're not, it just drives us deeper into our real hope. You see, this is why Peter says, these difficult circumstances have come so that your faith, your living hope in this higher reality may be proved genuine. Proved genuine, by the way. Not to God, but to you and to me. Look, fire doesn't destroy gold. It purifies it. Suffering doesn't destroy the new birth, the living hope we can have in Jesus and his gospel of grace. It purifies it because it burns off the insufficient, perishable hopes that create in us this vague chaos of life. Now here's what all this means, and it's a really incredible reality. The old, it's only the gospel of grace, this living hope that uses suffering to produce joy. And that means it is exactly in times like these when we learn to live and love again. Thank you so much, guys. I love that song. What a beautiful job they did on it. 
So what must we do to be born again into this living hope? Here's the paradox. Are babies born because they want to be? No. They're born through the labor and suffering of someone else. We know how often this is true in life. I mean, this is Memorial Day weekend, a time that we remember and honor those who gave their life for ours. Women give birth at the risk of their own life. And Jesus is offering us this new birth at the cost of his. To be born again is to simply acknowledge reality. We need nourishment something way beyond a bigger cage, a few more toys, or maybe a mirror to admire ourselves in. We need a new living hope, one beyond what we can achieve or attain. And then, place our trust in Jesus, willing to begin the long, complicated, and often messy process of learning to live and love again. In June, we're going to have a baptism service. And I'd love to talk with you about that if you're interested. I think it's, it would be a perfect way to celebrate a new birth into a living hope that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to be together. Thank you for all the folks who have been working so hard behind the scenes to make the online gathering happen, to continue to reach out uh, through storyline, to love people right where they are. Uh, God, we thank you for um, how that is a demonstration of your love to us. God, I pray that this week you would show us, give us a glimpse into your higher reality this kingdom of God, and what it might look like to live with the unspeakable joy, the unshakable faith in that higher order reality, that this is just the beginning of the story. How might that ignite our life in a new direction, with a new source and a new goal? We thank you for loving us that way for inviting us into that. I pray that as we log off this morning that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, thanks for joining us. Um, you scroll down, there's a button to join the Zoom call afterwards. Love, love to see you there. Thanks. Nice.